All right, well, let's turn to God's word. Um, before we jump in, I just wanted to let you know that as we go, uh, I may uh, have a couple of different times that we stop and um, I'll ask you a question and you can stop the video and discuss that with people uh, you're with or um, all those will be available as discussion questions on the different document at the end if you'd like to just do that uh, after the sermon. So let me pray as we go into this time uh, in God's word. Lord Jesus, we thank you again for speaking to us. Thank you for time uh, together uh, around your word, around uh, a perfect, flawless scripture. Uh, may it inform our hearts, may it encourage us, may it uh, challenge us and do all the things that you intended it for, for it to do when you authored it um, through Peter. Um, lead us in this time, God, we need your presence and uh, we look forward to to interacting with you now most of all in Jesus name amen all right there are times that I go to the post office most times and uh, there's a series of questions when you mail a package that they ask you questions like uh, are there is there anything with lithium in here or hazardous material or and I'm just accustomed to saying no right no 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 just get through the questions to get finally getting out of there. Um, but there was actually one time that they asked a question that I typically say no to, uh, but this time it was different. They asked, do you want confirmation of delivery? And I was there to actually mail um, a whole packet of documents um, off to our adoption agency uh, to um, continue the process in, in getting our daughter. And so we had spent months, form after form, notary after notary, getting this packet together and blood, sweat, and tears, probably hundreds of hours has gone into this paperwork and getting it ready. And so when they asked, do I want confirmation of delivery? I said, absolutely yes. I will pay anything to know that this got where it was meant to get to. Um, I wanted to know that all of our work would not be in vain that God's great provision of this adoption and our hard work in it uh, wouldn't be hindered and that our girl would make it all the way home. And Peter, in this letter, wants the same for the churches that he's trying to stir up towards godliness. Uh, he wants to make sure uh, that they will have confirmation of delivery. Now, last week we saw in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, that God had provided everything needed for life and godliness. You remember that? An incredible promise last week. Um, basically, he was saying that all the contents of salvation are in the box when it arrives. Everything that you need, God provides. And at the end of our passage today, he's going to be talking about kind of the end of the race, not, not the beginning where he gives us the, the initial package of salvation, but the final culmination of that package in what's called our entrance into the kingdom of our Lord and his gracious, generous provision of that through Christ. But the question for the, the text that we're in today is what happens in between those things, in between when we initially encounter salvation, it's this all-inclusive salvation, and when we arrive at that final kingdom, what happens in between those things? What's required of us in between? What part do we play in that? 
And how can Peter have confirmation that the people of these churches will be delivered into that kingdom of Christ uh, with that all-inclusive salvation? How does that confirmation of delivery happen? And that's where we pick it up in 2 Peter uh, chapter 1. I'm going to start the reading in verse 3. We'll read through verse 11. Uh, Go ahead and open your Bibles to that, and uh, I'll read this for us. I'm reading out of English Standard Version. It says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Quite a follow-up to last week. Um, Here's the point uh, of this morning. God's sufficient salvation includes his people's diligent effort towards godliness, which serves to confirm their calling and election. I'll read that again. God's sufficient salvation includes his people's diligent efforts towards godliness, which serve to confirm their calling and election. Our outline, uh, which you can find on our sermon outline, it's the document that's attached to this. Uh, There, you can print that off if you'd like. Uh, Outline is this. Number one, what God's sufficiency creates, a diligent zeal for godliness. Number two, what diligent zeal for godliness is, fruitful knowledge. Number three, what fruitful knowledge confirms God's calling and election. And then we'll talk about some implications. So first, what what God's sufficiency creates, diligent zeal for godliness. In the first half of... uh, Verse 5, when it says, for this very reason, he's obviously continuing his thought from what we've uh, learned last week. And the question is, why should I make every effort to supplement my faith? And that's because of what Peter has just said. He said that the divine power of Jesus Christ has provided everything that's needed for life and godliness. That everything we need, we have in him. And so God is the source of that godliness. He delivers this power by continually teaching us what he's like, right? That's the goal of our godliness. And by directing our future trust in certain promises. You remember he talked about the very great promises that are a means by which we can become partakers of the divine nature. So the question is, what's the right response to such a generous and all-inclusive gift, this gift of salvation that God has given us? And Peter says, it's to make every effort uh, to supplement your faith with virtue. As an example of this, <coughs> um, my, 
my son is really into playing bass, electric bass right now. And he's musical in every way. He's, I'm really proud of him. Um, he's really skilled at what, what he's doing. He knows lots of instruments and I'm just imp impressed with the guy. Uh, but he's been shopping for uh, bass guitars and amps online and he's really, it's getting to that fever pitch. Uh, so he's borrowed a bass from somebody in the worship team and everything. Uh, his birthday's coming up. And so I can just imagine him one day walking downstairs to see a brand new Yamaha bass guitar, amplifier, chords, everything plugged in, all ready to go. Now, this is not a promise, by the way. This may or may not happen. But, um, if it were to happen, um, his parents were generous enough to do that. What do you think his response uh, to that would be? Do you think he would take that instrument and that amplifier and those supplies and just take it up to his room and make sure that dust didn't gather on it? You know, just kind of looked at it constantly. He would play it, right? I mean, he would jump in and he would use it. He would probably play it too loud. He would, he would go for it. He would use the, the, the gift that was given. He would expend energy uh, making sure uh, to enjoy the gift that he received. <laughs> when you think about this, you ask questions like, what would a slave do when they finally get their freedom, right? They would take it. What would a captured animal do when they're finally released from a cage? They would take off and they would enjoy their habitat. What would a person do when they finally get all the ingredients that they shopped at 10 stores during a pandemic to finally cook the thing that they've wanted to you know, cook for a long time? They would make it, right? That's the obvious thing that would happen. What does a person do who has escaped from corruption because they now know about a generous God who's provided everything they need for a life of godliness? They would make every effort to be godly. That's what Peter is saying. Saying for this very reason, after describing this incredible gift of salvation, the natural response is to make every effort to grow in that faith. Make every effort, another way of saying it is do anything you can. Spend any amount of energy that you can. Commit to this. Make it your highest priority. Do your very best to. I mean, it's zealous, uh, eager, haste, uh, urgent kind of action that he's calling for. It's the same word used in First Peter or Second Peter 3, uh, 14, when it says, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him, without blemish, the same idea. One commentator says, the grace of God demands, as it enables, effort in man. We are to bring into this relationship, alongside what God has done, every ounce of determination that we can muster. So it's clear from this that effort is not the enemy of grace. It's evidence of it. That's what Peter is saying. Spiritual zeal is the expected response to salvation in Jesus. It's part of unwrapping this gift of salvation. See, we were made for holiness. Um, in a book by Kevin DeYoung called The Whole in Our Holiness, which I would recommend to you, is a great book. Um, it says a couple different things that I want to read to you. He says, uh, the pursuit of holiness feels like one more thing to worry about in your already impossible life. You feel that way about holiness? Then he goes on. 
and says J.C. Ryle, a 19th century bishop of Liverpool, was right, quote, We must be holy because this is one grand end and purpose for which Christ came into the world. Jesus is a complete Savior. He does not merely take away the guilt of a believer's sin. He does more. He breaks its power. And then de Young goes on. He says, My fear is that as we rightly celebrate, and in some quarters rediscover, all that Christ has saved us from, we are giving little thought and making little effort concerning all that Christ has saved us to. So effort is not the enemy of grace. It's the evidence of it. Jung says later, trusting does not put an end to trying. Trusting does not put an end to trying. Now you might stop and ask yourself, what do I have absolutely no problem putting effort towards? What do I make every effort uh, or act wholeheartedly with all my might? When, when do I do that? You can even stop the video and discuss that uh, with the people you're watching this with if you want. Sadly, one of the first things when we think of when we think about effort or what it means to be godly is we think about what it costs us, right? Instead of what we gain by it. We can think, you know, when I get old and I'm bored, then I'll bother with being godly. But for now, I'm just going to enjoy my life. But this is not the Bible's view of godliness. The Bible describes godliness as enjoyable, as sweet, as desirable, as fulfilling, as enriching. So it's true that there's a cost to godliness, but there's also a cost to things like going on vacation, right? That was what I thought of with that last question. What do I make every effort towards? What am I willing to spend on? What am I, what am I willing to be um, kind of over the top with? It's vacation, right? You have no problem spending on vacation. You have no problem paying the cost of vacation or make every effort towards it. So this required effort um, isn't at odds with joy. It's, it's not at odds with um, being sure of justification. Uh, it, it works in cooperation with those things. And see, this required effort isn't outside of the salvation that God has provided. It's within it. Because the perspective that we need to desire godliness comes from God, right? So the source of this effort is God's generosity, as we've seen in 2 Peter 1, the first part of the chapter. So God's Spirit stirs our hearts and, and empowers our efforts so that we genuinely desire and strive for godliness. And we see this tension of uh, God-empowered and yet man-willed um, cooperation, if you want to call it that, and sanctification in passages like 1 Corinthians 15.10. Paul says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Or Philippians 2, 12 through 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So, we must strive, we must desire, we must pursue, we must be active in this. And in that activity, God is active. 
is what the scriptures say. Now, how does Peter tell us to direct this effort? What does he tell us to point it towards? He says, to make every effort to supplement your faith. And then he lists things. To supplement your faith, to supply, to add to it, to nourish it, to encourage it, to bring something alongside of it, is the idea. It's the same word used in verse 11, which is in a passive sense, when God richly provides this kingdom. Okay. So we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. But as they say, though we are saved through faith alone, that faith is never alone. It's always accompanied by good works and holiness, by godliness, by fruit. These things are not at odds uh, with each other. These are friends, not enemies in the scriptures. Michael Green, another commentator, says this, Human effort is indispensable even though it is inadequate. There is enough truth to hurt in Moffat's quotation of a cynic's description of Christian experience as, quote, listen to this, an initial spasm followed by a chronic inertia. If this danger is to be avoided, the Christian must always be adding to his faith. That's what Peter is saying to do. To grow in godliness, to grow in certain qualities that add to, that enrich, come alongside our faith. So, the first thing we see here is that God's sufficient salvation creates zeal for godliness. It's a part of, part of that package. It's part of the contents of the box salvation. Now, the second question is, what, what is it that, what does diligent zeal for godliness look like? Okay, and Peter would say it's fruitful knowledge. Fruitful knowledge. So, what are the things that we are to make every effort towards to add to our faith? What are these necessary companions that, that travel with our faith? Peter lists seven things here. He says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. So he gives us a list. Now, there's lots of lists like this in the, New, in the New Testament. You think of the fruit of the Spirit, right, in Galatians 5. And we can't treat each list like it's this uh, airtight thing, because there's many of these, and the lists don't, they don't always sound the same and look the same. So it's not like there's one idea. Um, this was common in, in biblical times to, to list virtues in this way. Um, and so Peter, what he does is he kind of builds things on top of each other, seeming to start with the qualities that were internal, which would enable kind of the qualities that become external. So if you look at what Peter says after the list in, in verse uh, 8, it kind of helps us understand how he's structuring the list in, in verses um, 6 and 7, or 5, 6, and 7. So these don't just drop in your head one day, right? These are things that slowly accumulate and increase. Um, so if you read the next verse, it says, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So they are fruit that grow from your knowledge of Jesus. And what are they? Mother faith, right? This is where he starts off. And faith is with virtue, 
which is kind of a summary term of excellence that, that the Greco-Roman world would have understood and valued and treasured. Um, his audience would have been seeking to be virtuous. And so Peter starts with that as kind of a summary term. He says knowledge, which really is more of an applied knowledge, uh, kind of a street-level understanding of what it means to be godly and to be like Jesus, um, applying truth to life, you could say. And he mentioned self-control, which was the ability to keep passions leashed in their proper place. Whether that restraint was in eating or uh, sexual or in the words we speak, whatever it is, you can see why uh, something like self-control would be necessary uh, to come before loving other people. Uh, because you have to have your own uh, passions subdued. One commentator described self-control as submission to the control of the indwelling Christ. So listening to the indwelling Christ first over your passions. Then he says steadfastness, steadfastness, which means endurance, perseverance. Um, in the same way that a person who lacks self-control might be overwhelmed by passions, a person who lacks steadfastness is overwhelmed by their circumstances or by what's happening around them. Um, steadfastness prevents a, you know, it prevents a person from just purely uh, being their attitude being controlled by uh, sorrow, things like that. That's really needed in that final trait of love because we will be available or unavailable to love as we are steadfast, right? And so in order to love someone, we need that kind of persistence or that consistency that regardless of what our lives are like, we're still able to, to focus on and meet and, and move towards the needs of other people. He mentions godliness, which means uh, a reverence or a religious piety. Um, uh, it especially has to do with submission to authority, particularly God. But in the Greco-Roman culture, they viewed um, godliness as more than just that. It's a, a dutiful willingness, you could say. And then finally, these last two affections start to, to go from inward to being outward or, or internal to external. Um, and he mentions brotherly affection or Philadelphia. Um, this is the love between family, really. And it's interesting that Peter goes out of his way to use this term to describe what the family of God were like. The Greco-Roman culture around him would have been um, kind of shocked by this. They, they, those are different things in the, the lens of the through the lens of the culture. But the sympathy and friendship and all those things required of the body of Christ so paralleled what um, uh, your own family commitments looked like in the body of Christ that he uses this term, brotherly affection. This is the kind of consideration that the church is having one for another uh, around them that's a, a marked difference uh, from, from the people that they lived around. And last, of course, we have love as kind of the culminating uh, attribute uh, of what supplements faith or what adds to faith or what enriches faith. And this love is, of course, different than the brotherly love or brotherly affection or sexual love, which is kind of intended for mutual pleasure. Um, 
one author points out that this kind of love exists solely in the agent, meaning the one loving. That, that it's not in the object, the one who's loved. It's solely in the agent. And this is what God's love for us is like, because God is love. Love um, generates from him. He is its definition. And so this is last for a reason, because the love of others is the culmination of what has come before, right? Love is applied knowledge. Desiring and sacrificing for what's best for another assumes a, a measure of self-control that requires steadfastness, as we mentioned. It requires godliness so you can direct others in a godly direction. Love has a goal. Love requires affection and generosity of spirit that was evident amongst the church. So loving others is when we are most closely imitating our Heavenly Father and his love towards us. So that's the end of the line. The greatest of these, Peter's mind, is love. So these are the companions to faith. These are the things that we're to make every effort to strive and pursue uh, in order to, to grow in. Um, now, one, one thing you could stop and even consider uh, with those you're with um, is maybe as you, you heard those read or as you look back over those, one really catches your attention and you want to spend some time thinking about that or talking about that or maybe talking about the progression of words in this passage. Uh, maybe one of those words you feel like God is really working with you on right now in a very specific way that you could talk about. Or maybe there's a lack that you can you can tell um, after reading God's word that you'd want to discuss. So feel free to stop uh, the video and to talk about that uh, if you'd like. So our last point um, is what does this fruitful knowledge then do? What's the point of it? And what it really does is it confirms God's calling and God's election. <clears throat> this is really from verses 8 through 11, which take these qualities and, and kind of explain. So to recap real quick, God's sufficient salvation creates a hunger for godliness. Those aren't at odds. Those are part of the same package. This effort towards godliness bears fruit, which this is, it results in something tangible something visible. And now the question is, what is the presence of that fruit, or what does that show, or the lack of fruit indicate? So two things we're going to see through these final verses, 8 through 11, and we'll just kind of track each of these scenarios. One is that a lack of godly fruit in a person demonstrates a blindness to the knowledge of Christ, which could be spiritually fatal. And two, we see the opposite end of that extreme, that the presence of godly fruit shows true knowledge of Christ, which comes from God's calling and election and leads to a kingdom entrance. Those are the two paths that we see um, re repeated in verses 8 through 11. So first, let's look at the first path. The person who lacks these supplements to faith, they lack fruit in their life. Notice in verse 8, it says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. So the person who lacks fruit is, that describes them, right? They're ineffective, they're unfruitful. In verse 9, it says, for whoever lacks these qualities, that's the person we're talking about, is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. 
Now, what this likely means is that um, blindness is obviously the extreme of uh, this description, uh, but nearsighted is this idea of kind of eyes half closed. And it, what it really means is what he has in front of him is all he's thinking about. He's thinking about earthly things. He's, um, he's not, he doesn't have that long distance sight. It's kind of a, a metaphor in the Bible for a lack of understanding nearsightedness and it's really ultimately going to lead to blindness he either has warped knowledge he's either a christian and he's been forgetful about his cleansing in jesus which most likely refers back to his baptism is is how the word is typically used um so this is a person who's not heavenly minded um they've maybe been under the water but there aren't signs that that baptism has taken root there's not, not fruit in their life that, that correspond to that claim to be in Christ. So they're lacking these qualities. And it's either because they're, they never were a Christian or they're, they're a Christian that's not, not growing for some reason. One last description is in verse 10. It says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. By that mean, it doesn't mean trip outside, or it doesn't mean sin, or it doesn't mean make a mistake or offend God. It just means um, spiritual ruin, or spiritual disaster, implying that the person who never has these fruits and doesn't have this evidence of saving life is going to suffer spiritual disaster. They are going to come to spiritual ruin. It's most likely, this is related to how these false teachers were um, persuading people um, to, to join their side and join their apostasy and their false teaching about who Christ was and, and what he was doing. So that's how Peter describes it as a fall or spiritual ruin. So notice the progression. A lack of fruit betrays a lack of knowledge, either as a, a Christian who needs to repent or who never was a Christian. A lack of fruit betrays a lack of knowledge which indicates a lack of saving faith, which leads to spiritual disaster. That's, that's the first track. That's the first indicator of, of or confirmation or lack thereof of what this fruit does. Now, let's look at these verses through the lens of the person who does bear these qualities, who does have this fruit. Okay? So in verse 8, it says that are the qualities that are yours and increasing. They prevent them from being ineffective and unfruitful. So they're these are effective, they're fruit-bearing Christians, they're, their faith is, is accomplishing things for the kingdom of God and the mission of God. Um, verse 9 kind of assumes by implication that if you are growing in these things and you do have these qualities, then the cleansing in Christ is something that they're mindful of. That they, they're aware of God's effective change in their life um, when they were cleansed. And uh, from their former sins. That's something that a person who's growing is mindful of. Okay, And then in verse 10, um, obviously, if they practice these qualities, then it means that their calling and election are, are confirmed or they're more sure. Okay, Firm here means guaranteed or reliable or unshaken, valid. This is the word that Peter used to describe the scriptures in 2 Peter 1.19. It means there's a proven validity over time. It's kind of the idea. 
Now, the language of calling an election, both point back to God's sovereign choice to include uh, this person in his family. So election occurs first where God appoints you, not because of what's in you, but because of the grace that's in him, and appoints you to salvation before the foundation of the world. You are elect, you're chosen. But that election becomes evident when you have spiritual understanding. And this is when God effectually calls you to himself. Okay, So everyone answers yes when God effectually calls them. That's what effectual call means. There's a general call of the gospel that goes out, right, and to respond to the gospel. And that general call gets both yeses and noes, right, uh, from people. But God's effectual call gets one response. Now, the way that you know that God's effectual call has been responded to is in a person's response to the gospel. So God illuminates the mind of the person. It shows them the beauty of Christ. It shows them what's valuable and beautiful about him and glorious and true. And so then out of that understanding that's given by God, a person then willingly comes and responds uh, to that call of the gospel uh, and culminating in faith and justification and all things that follow. So this is how it becomes evident who are elect and who are called by God. But Peter is saying that it doesn't just stop there, that the evidence of that election and then calling in response to the gospel and life in Christ is also tied to a person's fruitfulness, to practicing these qualities, to growing in these ways. He's saying that gospel fruitfulness confirms gospel deliverance, that those things are related. In verse 11, you'll notice that the gates uh, of the kingdom don't open wide for us because of our godly behavior or what we do. Entrance into the eternal kingdom is what? Richly provided for you. And that's uh, comes from faith. There's a passive sense in which God is the one who's providing this. That's why that's happening. So Peter is not saying to make your faith the kind of faith that lasts through effort. He's saying make sure that your faith is of the lasting kind. See, we can't turn our faith into something that endures and that lasts. We're given faith that does last. We see that an example of this, of how this plays out, uh, is a great example it's from 1 Thessalonians 1. And Paul says this, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he's chosen you. How would, how would they know that? How would Paul know who God's choosing? He says, Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us. This is now when these qualities start happening in the lives of the Thessalonian believers. And of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with joy, Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So Paul is telling the Thessalonians what Peter is saying in principle. I know that God has elected you because there's fruit, because there's, there's confirmation of Christ's work in you and in your attachment to him and the transformation of your character. So what does this 
fruitful knowledge or lack thereof confirm or deny? Well, it's whether a person really knows Jesus or not. It's the confirmation of delivery uh, that we were looking at earlier from the post office. Now, maybe now's a good time to stop uh, the video and talk about the importance of spiritual growth in the Christian life. Maybe discuss, is it, is it really necessary according to Peter? Or even why would God want us to have this assurance or not have an assurance from this text? Let's finish up with some implications. And I'm going to be asking a lot of questions in here that I'm not going to stop. I encourage you to stop the video. You certainly can, uh, but there'll be a part of our discussion questions at the end. I want to look at the implications for each of these three steps that we've looked through in this text. First, I want to look at zeal. At zeal. For this eager, passionate, make every effort to kind of idea that's coming out of this text. If God's sufficient salvation creates a zeal for godliness, then the question is, how would you describe the pace of your pursuit of godliness? What pace are you running at? Are you, are you standing still? Are you power walking? Are you jogging unhappily? <laughs> uh, what, what pace of pursuit of godliness? Are you lethargic? Are you spiritually hyper? Are you particularly energetic or discouraged right now? What is keeping you from pursuing godliness? One of the things that's increasingly the case is that godliness kind of has a stigma attached to it. Uh, Kevin DeYoung says, The world provides no cheerleaders on the pathway to godliness. And that's true. I think he describes it in an even more compelling way when he says, that godliness, there's this fear that a passion for holiness makes you some kind of weird holdover from a bygone era. As soon as you share your concern about swearing or about avoiding certain movies or about modesty or sexual purity or self-control or just plain godliness, people look at you like you have a moralistic dab of cream cheese on your face from the 1950s. I think that's a good description of what it can feel like to pursue godliness in the midst of our culture, and even in the midst of the cultures of our church. Peter wants us to see, too, you'll notice that, that verses 5 through 11 assume an understanding of verses 3 and 4. That there's a relationship between these two. So maybe for you, the start of making every effort begins with considering the scope of God's provision in Christ as given in verses 3 and 4. Maybe it's considering his precious promises. You know, I think this, this pandemic um, and shelter in place is a, is a time that we could really allow spiritual lethargy to set in. We could really slow our pace. Because it kind of feels like we've all kind of been benched for a while, you know? Um, I saw a funny meme where, where it says, God stepped down and sent everyone to their rooms, you know, kind of idea, where we're just on hold. But this, this is not the case. This is the time... Um, to be spiritually alert and aware. This is not time for spiritual slacking. There's a vulnerability in this isolation that we have to acknowledge, which, which will mean that, um, that we need to be pushed nearer to Christ and nearer to each other because our natural tendency is going to be just to, to kind of just coast and to detach from one another. 
So how might you partner with others in this season to be intentional about growing in godliness? What new rhythms could be started now that could help propel your faith when maybe things return to normal? I just encourage you in this. Godliness can feel impossible, uh, but it's, it, it's a comfort for us to know that this growth in godliness, God has actually provided for, uh, as he says in verse 3, that his divine power supplies all that's needed for life and godliness. That includes the application of these things and these ever-increasing qualities. So your growth and godliness is a part of his sovereign design. He's already provided resources for your growth. They do involve your effort, but they're not without his help and without his presence. The second encouragement for you in this is just that imperfect, slow, and inconsistent efforts still please God. You know, sometimes we feel like if we can't do things perfectly and we can't get an A-plus from God that we can't please Him. And that's just not, that's not true. We can please our Heavenly Father. Even with our, our uh, you know, flawed efforts at times, our God is gracious. Our God is, is, is eager to work with us. He's, he's encouraged to see um, our desire to serve Him. And if you think about your own kids if you have kids and, and when they're trying to do the right thing but they're just fumbling it and they're just messing it up they're just doing it the wrong way but but you're still pleased you're still glad uh, that their attempts of obedience are sincere so be encouraged but where is your zeal at that's our first implication second is about fruit i think uh, peter's list can be a good list for prayer for us to, to pray that God would develop steadfastness in us in this time, that self-control would mark us so that love would, would be more um, obvious in our lives. So we could pray those things through. That'd be helpful, I think. Uh, maybe I just commend that to you. Um, but consider, you know, your fruitfulness. We need to be careful when we're measuring fruitfulness as you'll notice that Peter says, um, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they're increasing. They're not perfect. They're increasing. Sometimes in measuring our spiritual fruitfulness, other people have a better uh, perspective than we do because we're with ourselves every day, right? If we're going to be introspective, we, we need... We need to be purposeful in that, not to disparage us, but to point us forward in prayer. We also need to be careful in how we understand what we mean by the term knowledge. Only what we know truly affects how we truly live, or how we live shows us what we truly know. True knowledge is both in your head and your hands. You know it and you do it. And if it's not in both of those things, you might not actually know what you think you know. The false teachers claim to know a lot of things in this letter, um, but their lives prove their ignorance of those things. I bring this up because as you look at fruitfulness, a lack of fruit could point to a couple different things. One, uh, it might show you that, that there's content you need to learn and, and understand. There's things you actually don't know that you need to know. Maybe God's precious promises, the inheritance of your salvation, the specific glories of Jesus. Or a lack of fruitfulness could also point 
that you might intellectually know something that you haven't bothered to invite into your actual life. You don't actually know it in the biblical sense of know it. You're halfway there. So I suppose this question uh, around fruit is just, are you bearing fruit? Are you increasing in godliness or are you slipping backwards? Where are you at in regards to fruitfulness? Lastly, let's think about the delivery confirmed. You know, we've got to do what Peter charges us to do, which is to make your calling and election sure. So as you consider your zeal, as you consider your desire for godliness and the fruitfulness of your life, what does that all point to? How are you doing? And what does that tell you? Does it does that upset you? Does that encourage you? Does it concern you? Does it lift you up? Um, we don't want to avoid questions that Scripture asks us to, to ask ourselves. And so for those who are in Christ, um, there's, there's greater security offered to you in, in doing this. For those who are not in Christ, but may think there are, they are, there should be greater insecurity so that it would lead you uh, to the foundation, to the rock, who's Christ. How might you involve another person in this process to give you some perspective around these things? Maybe to pray with you, to partner with you in areas that you want to grow, to help you assess uh, where you're really at with the Lord and, and making your calling and election sure. Just as a final note, uh, we want to remember that Peter started off our section saying that his divine power, speaking of Jesus, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Jesus is the culmination. He is the, the perfect picture of this. And his, his powerful supply is sufficient for living godly lives. Human effort in sanctification is a component of his grace, of his provision. And growth in Christ are pieces you know, in the box of salvation as we unwrap it and as we open it that we can excitedly pursue and make every effort towards. So open up those contents. Get all of Christ you can in all of your life that you can for all the world. God is present in the, the stumbling efforts that you will make to help you, encourage you, guide you, direct you. But let's start making them. I think that's Peter's challenge for us, is to make every effort to supplement our faith by his grace because of his great, all-inclusive salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the extent of your gift. God, that you not only granted us salvation and rescue through Jesus, But the judgment of our sin uh, is accomplished through the cross. But I thank you, too, that the power of sin has been broken. And that now, God, you energize us to make every effort to supplement our faith with the things listed here. Thank you, God, that your great grace to us includes even the motivation and the perspective and the desire to grow in ways that, that help us to become more like you. So help us to do that. Help us not to go off the cliff of, of self-reliance and, and trying to structure and organize our salvation in such a way that would just be foolish. 
But God, keep us from laziness as well. We, we have such a great salvation in your son Jesus. And I pray that, that the world could not look at, at the church and just and wonder where its motive is and, and wonder why it's not moving and, and wonder why uh, we're standing still. God, I pray for specific conviction and for, for a hopeful uh, a hopeful resurgence of biblical effort uh, made by your people. May you strengthen it by your grace and give us all that we need as you've promised. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.